Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. A story that is told well is still the most effective means of communication today. A good story is better than a lecture because a good story brings the dry principles of a lecture to life. It makes them come alive. For instance, I could lecture on the subject of a guilty conscience, but if I told a story on a guilty conscience, it would mean so much more. Like, for instance, the young boy who uh, in his Sunday school class was constantly causing problems. And eventually the teacher said uh, that she thought it might be a good idea to have the pastor come and talk to this young lad, and he did. And so while the rest of the class was getting together, talking about certain things, he pulled the young man aside and they sat down at a table together and in somewhat of a sober voice, he said to the young man, Billy, where is God? And Billy was kind of surprised at that. In fact, he had somewhat of an anxious look. He pulled back, his eyes got real big. He began to sweat around the mouth and brow and looked around on both sides and the pastor drew a little closer and said, Billy now, where is God? Billy got real big and suddenly he bolted from the room, ran out of the church, ran down the street, ran into his house, ran up into his room, ran into the closet and shut the door. As he ran by into his house, his friend Johnny saw him and was concerned with the look on his face. So Johnny went upstairs and went into his room and knocked on the closet door. And Billy said, Johnny, get in here quick. So he did and he slammed the door shut and in the darkness of the closet, he said, you know what's happening out there? And he said, no, what is it? He said, the church, they've lost God. <laughs> and now they want to pin the blame on me. <laughs> now that's a lot better than a lecture on a guilty conscience, isn't it? A good story beats even a drama, though a drama acts things out because a good, a good story leaves room for your imagination to continue to act. A good story triumphs over an explanation because it can present sophisticated truths quite simply. In fact, it was Abraham Lincoln who once said, they say I tell a great many stories and I reckon I do, but I have found in the course of a long experience that common people take them as they run and are more easily informed through the medium of a story than in any other way. Robert Bly, who wrote the best-selling book, Iron John, wrote that complicated story of manhood and reduced it down around a simple story, a 19th century fairy tale called Iron John. You see, Bly, like Lincoln, realized that a good story can present those sophisticated truths of manhood in a very simple way in a story so that we can chew on them, think about them, and digest them. A good story is also easily remembered, and that's why all through Jesus' ministry, He told stories to present very sophisticated spiritual truths in a way that the common man could understand. You know, the Gospels themselves are nothing more than a series of stories. They're stories that are easily remembered because they can present those truths so simply. So this evening, as we open up into Luke chapter 7, what is before us is a series of stories in chapter 7. And I would like to retell 
these three real-life stories as Luke recorded them 2,000 years ago and, and for you unpack some of the very powerful spiritual insights for living that are contained within them. Now I say three because I learned earlier this morning that I could only get to three, though there are four on your outline. So I'm going to let you unpack the last one by yourself. But let's look at these three. The first is a story of faith. It's a story of faith, but a profound story of faith, as we'll see. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. When Jesus had completed all the discourse in the hearing of the people, He went to Capernaum. And a certain centurion slave who was highly regarded by Him was sick and about to die. When He heard about Jesus, He sent some Jewish elders asking Him to come and to save the life of His slave. And when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated Him, saying, He, the centurion, is worthy for you to grant this to Him, for He loves our nation, and it was He who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on His way with them, and when He was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to Him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the multitudes that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. They found him in good health. And this is a good story. And one of the ways to unpack a story is by asking some questions. So let's ask this first opening question. After reading the story, how did this centurion save his slave. Look at the story. How did he save his slave? You know, that's an important question to answer because in answering it this evening, we're going to discover two very profound things. We're going to discover how you save your soul. And secondly, how you make your life exciting. Now you may say, I didn't see that in there, but it's in there. You know, according to the Gospel of Matthew, in the parallel account of this event, this centurion slave was not just sick. It says in Matthew that this centurion slave was paralyzed. He was in a paralytic condition. And his body was deteriorating. And as it did, this slave was every day suffering great and increasing agony. And when I read that, I thought, you know, I can identify with that in some ways by looking at the world around me. I don't have a slave, but I get an opportunity to peer into people's souls. And you know, in many cases, their souls look just like this slave. They're paralyzed. Not sure what to do with life. Now on the outside, they don't show that, do they? On the outside, they look successful. On the outside, they look beautiful and talented. But inwardly, many of those very same people have a soul that looks like this slave. Sick. Paralyzed. Unable to know what to do with my life. Now, they're not going to tell you that, but that's how they feel. They live those lives of Thoreau in quiet desperation. And over a period of time, their condition gets increasingly worse 
with greater suffering. This centurion, looking at his slave, loving his slave, wanting his slave to be healed, asked the Jewish elders of Capernaum to go and talk to Jesus. Now, I hope that seems strange to you, a Roman centurion asking Jewish elders to go ask Jesus to heal. And stranger still is that they did it. They left and they went and they eagerly responded to his request and they went to Jesus and made this request of the centurion. And that tells us something right at the beginning of the story that this is no ordinary Roman, is it? Now the Romans were the enemies of the Jews. But this Roman centurion evidently did not have an adver adversarial relationship with his Jewish counterparts. In fact, it seems as you read the story, he had just the opposite. He had a very affectionate relationship with them. Notice in verse 5, we find out why. Because they tell Jesus, they say, He loves our nation. He does. And in fact, it was He, this centurion, that helped us build our synagogue. So what this tells me is this Roman centurion was a man of character. Evidently, he was a man of class, of love, certainly of good deeds. And I'm sure if he helped them build their synagogue, he was one who was familiar with the Jewish religion and the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish expectation that there was a coming Messiah. And I even wonder if he was wondering, could Jesus be him? When the Jewish elders come to Jesus, they come to Jesus and they bring the merits of the centurion with them, seeking help for this friend. And now comes the key line of the story. I want you to notice it. It's in verse 4. You might even underline it. They say this to Jesus. They say, He, the centurion, is worthy for you to grant this to him. Now behind that statement, I would like to ask a profound question. Because it's part of what all this story is about. Is this how one comes to God? All the major religions of the world would say yes. Because all the major religions of the world are based on merit. If you live good enough, you will deserve God. All the New Age thinking that we have going on in our world today is New Age thinking that continues to reinforce the self-esteem of the individual so much so that they deserve God to do certain things for them. And that's how these Jews approach Jesus, waving the flag of this centurion's human merit, telling God that He deserved this, holding up His character rather than coming to Jesus based on Jesus' character creating, in effect, a system of entitlement. You owe it to Him because He loves our nation and He's built us our synagogue. This centurion is worthy, they said. Is this how one approaches God? You know, it's interesting that this centurion himself had a counter statement to this kind of approach. If you'll notice in verse 6, he sends a signal to Jesus. At the end of verse 6, notice what he says. He doesn't say he's worthy. In fact, he says just the opposite. He says, I am not worthy for you to even come under my roof. Evidently, this Roman Gentile knew Judaism better than these Jewish leaders. He knew God owed him nothing. <laughs> God didn't owe him anything. He knew what the Jews should have known because the Jews were constantly going to the temple all the time and offering all these sacrifices for what? Their merit? 
<laughs> no, their sin. And asking God and pleading with God for Him to give them what they deserve? No. In the synagogue and in the temple, they were pleading with God for Him not to give them what they deserve, but to give them mercy. But you know what the Jews did? The Jews practiced one religion at the temple and another religion in real life. You know people like that? No people who say they believe God on the basis of faith and then they give, go out and live with God on the basis of works. I'll do this, this, and this, and you have to do this for me. <laughs> That's how these Jews were living, but not this Roman centurion. He knew God didn't know him anything. And on the, on, uh, not only that, he knew what hopefully we know, and that is that for every good thing in our life that we do, there is at least one evil ugly thing which can match it and neutralize it, if not more. In fact, he knew if he got what he deserved, he wouldn't like what he got when it showed up at his doorstep. And that's why in verse 7, he reiterates this statement. He says, for this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to even come to you. So this centurion approaches Jesus not on the basis of good deeds, but simply because, and these are the key words, now listen, he approached Jesus because he really believed that Jesus was bigger, better, smarter, and more powerful than him, and able to do what he could not. That simple but profound exchange of thought from, I deserve this, you owe this to me, I'm entitled to this, to an understanding of I believe that you, God, holds the key to life and that you're bigger, better, smarter, and more powerful than I am is a transformational moment in this centurion's life. He realizes that if his slave is to be saved, just like if a soul is to be saved, it's not going to be done because I deserve it. It's going to be done on the basis of faith. He says, if you can just speak the word, It'll be done. Now, in Matthew's account, Jesus does speak the word. He says, it's going to be done as you have believed. And he went back and the slave was healed. This same faith is how your paralyzed, diseased soul is healed. It's the same way. That's what the story is trying to tell us. It's not based on whether we deserve it. It's just simply based on whether we really do believe that God is bigger, better, smarter, and more powerful than we are. You see? Have you had that kind of moment in your life? Was there a transformational moment where you just didn't acknowledge that, but you really believed that? That happened to me in 1968. There was a moment in my life when, though things were going well on the outside, I really came to that place of faith, of trusting God with my life, believing that He was bigger, better, smarter, and stronger. Now, some of you have grown up in the church, and some of you have believed in Jesus Christ. But here's the question. Have you believed Him with the same radical faith that this Gentile, this Roman Gentile believed him, to put everything on the line in a radical way and say, I can't do it, but you can. You see, when you do that, that's saving faith. When you don't do that, that's a passive faith that just continues to spin the soul in circles, and it really doesn't deliver. 
Now I said at the beginning, this story tells us how our soul is saved. It's saved, not by works, but by faith. And I also said that this story tells us how we can have an exciting life. And it says that as well. Because in faith, real faith exercise, there should be some tangible results that you can show from really believing that God is bigger, better, smarter, and more powerful than you are. In 1968, as I look forward, I can see some of those tangible results. I can feel them. I could show you those. But let me ask you, when you think about your Christian life and when you placed your faith in Christ, was it kind of like the Jews did in the synagogue? But then they went out and lived another way on merit in real life? Or did you really do it? And if you really did it, what are the tangible results of it? You know, this last week as I was sitting there, as I asked myself that question, I started enumerating some of the things that faith, real faith, has done for me. For instance, faith is what released me as a college senior to marry Sherrod. We'd gone through a time where we'd broken up and struggled with one another, and I went through this agonizing year of soul searching, but in the end, it was faith that allowed me to make that commitment to her. It was faith that caused me to forsake at the end of college an excellent business opportunity and instead to go off to seminary in a fog. But I went by faith. It was faith that led Sharon and I to conclude that she should stay home with our newborn child, even though we didn't have the money for her to stay home. At least at that time, it didn't seem like we had the money. And so we had to take a faith step in order for her to do that. It was faith that helped me as a young man stop competing with people because I used to be a horrible competitor and had a lot of jealousy. But to believe what it says in Ephesians 2.10 that God has prepared something for me beforehand that I should walk in them. And by faith, I released that competition and just began to say, God, you have something for me and if I'm just faithful, I will achieve it. It was faith that allowed me to escape the past rather than be imprisoned by it or to wallow in it, but to believe God had something better. It was faith that lets me laugh at a funeral rather than just cry, although I do cry. It was faith that allows me to give away money rather than to hoard money. It's faith that lets me or empowers me to do right when there isn't anyone I know a hundred miles around, but I still choose to do right anyway. It's faith that propels me to take spiritual risk, whether it's confronting someone who's in sin when they need to be confronted, whether it means I'm sharing my faith boldly with somebody in a place where I may be laughed at or rejected, or whether it means taking on an issue, a moral issue that I know is right, that the scripture says is right, that has been proven to be right, but in our age, we say it's wrong. It's faith that does that. I love what one pastor wrote about faith. He says, if I were to pick a synonym for faith, biblical faith, I would choose the word, and listen to the word, adventure. That's what I would choose. Faith is not, he says, a dry theological concept. Faith is a risky, adrenaline-pumping adventure. See, God's kind of faith is here to pump you up. That's what He's here for. He wants to give you an exciting life. He wants to make it an adventure. That's what faith should do. 
But dry theological faith is something that you acknowledge in a church, but then you go out and live differently. But real faith, the centurion's kind of faith, not only heals your soul, but real faith makes life exciting. It puts you on the line. It challenges you. It challenges your reason. It challenges your senses. But it makes life an adventure. Insight number one on your outline is this. Faith is the proactive way we connect with God and His grace. Are you connected? If so, what are you trusting God for right now? Where are you currently believing God in real, tangible, practical ways that He's bigger, better, smarter, and more powerful than you are and able to do what you cannot? What are those ways that you could show another person? You know, it's interesting that sometimes new believers trust God more than older seasoned veterans in the faith. And isn't it interesting that that's exactly what Jesus says here in verse 9? He marveled and He says of this, Gentile, I've not found a faith greater in all of Israel. All these people who've been in line of faith for thousands of years, and here's this Roman centurion. He believes more than you all. What are you believing God for? What are you taking at risk for with God? What are you asking for from God for and putting yourself on the line that makes life an adventure? That's what this story is telling us all about. There's a second story. It's a story of compassion. Look at verse 11. It says, and it came about that soon afterwards, this incident here at Capernaum, that Jesus went to a city called Nain. And His disciples were going along with Him, accompanied by a large multitude. Now as He approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of His mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, He felt compassion for her. And He said to her, Do not weep. And He came up and He touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. And fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report concerning him went out over all Judea and in all the surrounding district. This story gives us a second great insight for living. I'm going to give it to you here at the first. It's this. It's that God cares enough for the individual to get involved. That may sound like something trite, but not when you understand it's God. That's why they were glorifying God at the end. God has actually taken the time to visit His people. God cares enough to get involved. And this story tells us He cares enough to get involved at three levels in your life and mine. Personally, emotionally, and, eternal, and eternally. And it's all seen in this passage. First, personally, notice in verse 11, it says Jesus went to a city called Nain. Now there's no reason given why He chose to go to Nain. But if you knew the geography of Israel and had it all figured out, you would know that Jesus is kind of, you know, it'd be like going to Memphis via Springdale, Arkansas. It doesn't make sense. He's going way out of the way. Nain is a hard, full day's journey by foot out of the way of regular commerce and traffic and where Jesus is eventually going to go. He's going out of His way. And by the way, that's the key to the story. You see, a lot of people think God has to do something for them. They're believers of entitlement. 
But God doesn't have to do anything for us. Not really. But what this story so powerfully proclaims, and this is what's exciting for me and was exciting for these people here, is that our God is a God not of the have to, but as we see in this story, because Jesus went out of His way. He's the God of the want to. He wanted to go to Nain. That's the point. He wanted to meet this woman personally. He wanted to get involved in her life intimately, just like He wants to get involved in your life and in my life. And so Jesus meets this woman face to face at the city gate, these big walled porticos. He meets her face to face, not accidentally, but providentially. It was a divine setup, if you will. And I want you to notice because two stranger groups of people probably have never met than these two. Because if you look at verses 11 and 12, you'll notice there's two crowds. There's just not Jesus and this woman. There's Jesus over here walking into the city, and He's got His disciples, His inner circle, and He's got a great multitude around Him. This was a large crowd going into the city. And over here coming out of the city was this woman weeping with others. And the coffin, and the coffin bearers, and then it says, a sizable crowd from the city. Evidently, she was a popular person. And they're going out. And these two crowds, these two unlikely crowds meet. One crowd going in, it's the crowd of life. One crowd going out, it's the crowd of death. One was rejoicing going into the city. One was mourning going out of the city and into the cemetery. Each crowd, if you'll notice, focused on an only son. One was over there rejoicing and listening intently for a son who was alive, an only son, but who was destined to die. <laughs> and the other crowd going out, they were focused on an only son too, who was dead. But as the story tells us, was destined to live. The crowd around Jesus was full of hope and expectation of the future. The crowd around this other son had been forced into facing their hopelessness and their despair. Spiritually speaking, we could say that every person in this room is in one of those two crowds. Because the reality is on planet Earth, it divides up into two groups. There is the one group who has finally put their trust in Jesus Christ. They've figured out He really is who He said He is, and they're moving into a city of life. Now, Hebrews tells us what that city is. It tells us it's a heavenly city whose architect and whose builder is God. They're moving from outside the walls into a life experience, and there's hope and expectation. But then there are those who were in the city who are dead in their sin. And though there have been a lot of play and maybe a lot of parties and a lot of fun, the reality is, is their journey is not in the city, but slowly over time moving out of the city and feeling pain and in time hopelessness and despair. Everyone is in one of those two groups. They pass, one on the way to life, one on the way to despair. Which group are you in? See, that's what this story is trying to tell us about. These two crowds meet. They don't meet accidentally, as I said. They meet because Jesus wanted them to meet. Just like Jesus went out of His way by wanting to come to planet Earth. He made that choice. He didn't have to. He wanted to. 
And it shows that God is forever reaching out to those who are being forced out of the city and who have no hope and are facing only death. And as Jesus meets this woman, He offers to her not just a solution to her problem. If you'll notice there in verse 13, the first thing He offers to her is a visceral connection in connecting with her pain. All of us, when we're hurting, would love someone to feel for us. It says that He felt compassion for her. He didn't just come up and say, hey, I can heal your son. He'll get to that. But the first thing He does is He enters into her heartache and into her pain. And oh, how we need people to feel our pain with us. Can I give you a principle here at this point? It's this. Feeling with a person affirms a person as a person in a way that solving the problem does not. To feel with a person affirms the worth of a person where just moving on to the task and solving their problem, it doesn't do that. For instance, a doctor might care about my cancer, and that's important. But having friends around me in the hospital, holding my hand, wincing at my agony, seeing the pain etched on their face that is in reality in my body, they tell me they care about me. Not my cancer. Me. Now, the doctor may solve my problem, <laughs> and I can't live without that. But you know, if I don't have this other group, I don't want to live. That's the point. You know, you may be here tonight, and you may feel like the loneliest person in the world. May feel like nobody cares about me. You may have gone out and done it the way you thought it should be done, and it's all turned to shipwreck. It's all it's done. And you've got a broken heart, and you feel like no one feels what I feel. But you're wrong. You've got a God who didn't have to, but He wants to enter your pain. The writer of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. In fact, he can in every way. He can feel what you feel and chooses to feel what you feel so he can affirm your humanity for what it really is. That's why he became a man, so he could feel your hurt. He felt compassion for her. That's where he starts. It's a great feminine trait to feel compassion, but we see it magnified in a man, a Savior as well. And we men need to learn that. But notice he goes on too, and he does what we expect him to do. Jesus goes on and he heals this son. He gives this son back to this woman in verses 14 and 15. He comes and touches the coffin. He says, young man, arise, and he does. And you know what happens at that with this story? Suddenly we have a preview of eternity. Remember I said Jesus cares enough or God cares enough to get involved personally? emotionally, and now here eternally. Here's a preview of eternity. Because though it's happening on an earthly level, it presents a greater picture of the future in which the living will be reconciled with the dead. You know, we sing about that in hymns all the time, but sometimes we don't really grip it like it should be gripped. We say, when we all get to heaven, remember that song? What a day of rejoicing that will be. What will it be like when the dead meet the living? We got a great picture if you stayed up real late last night and watched the World Series. You feel, you feel rejoicing in that last strike, and then those Blue Jays go running onto the field, and what do they do? They just dive into a pile, and they pull each other over on the ground, and they just roll on top of you, just a mass of bodies and arms and legs. 
They are so thrilled to be together. They did it. They won. You know, that's how I feel like it might be in eternity. <laughs> Here the day where the dead in Christ rise, they meet the saints in the air, and we all come together. What will it be like? Will you walk in and go, Joe, good to see you. No, I think we'll be running and there'll just be this big pile of people rolling and laughing, exciting all over each other. They can't believe we did it. We're here. What a day of rejoicing it will be. See, that's what eternity will feel like. You know, I remember this uh, last year when at Mother's Day I drove down to be with my mother who was in the hospital at the time in Monroe, Louisiana. It was, a, it was a particularly poignant moment because that was the day that the doctor said, Mrs. Lewis, there's nothing else we can do. She had been taking some radiation in her chest, but now they had found this fist-sized tumor in her brain, and there was really no sense in going on. And I met with the neurosurgeon, Dr. Bermudez, and we talked a little bit because he was wanting to know how he thought mom would take it and what we should say, and we talked it over, but we both felt it appropriate to let her know that there was no sense in going on with the radiation and that she would just have a short time. And so. Uh, a fine man that he was, he went in and, and gently explained that to Mother. You know, when somebody hears that, and I've replayed that event so many times, here it's Mother's Day. Here's a neurosurgeon and your son, and he's saying maybe three months. What do you think goes on in a person at that moment? You know, some people can say, I don't deserve this. This isn't right. I'm being cheated. See, there's the entitlement. Some people could get angry. Some people could shake their fist at God. You know, I've often wondered what all went through my mom's mind because I just saw all these thoughts rolling around as Dr. Bermudez kind of stumbled through this little speech that I'm sure he's given a hundred times. <laughs> I walked into the door and I turned back and I looked at Mother and, you know, we had had such a great time and she had this real... Um, peaceful look on her face. In fact, I think of all the things in that cancer experience with her, I'll remember this more than anything else. Mother's Day, and there she was, and I turned, and I waited for her to say something. And she looked up at me, and she, she broke into a smile, and she said this, I can't wait to see Mother and Daddy. Isn't that wonderful? See, we have a God who cares. He cares about us personally. He cares about us emotionally. And He cares about us enough to seal eternity for us. That's what it's all about, folks. That's why this is a powerful story. The dead will meet the living. There's one final story we want to look at before we finish tonight. It's a story of doubt. Look at verse 18. It says, And the disciples of John reported to Him all these things. And summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? Now, isn't that a strange statement for John the Baptist? At least if you know much about him. The men had come to him, uh, that is Jesus. They said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? Now, at that very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases and afflictions, evil spirits, and He granted sight to many who were blind. And He answered and He said to them, these messengers, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. 
You know, there's a good lesson for us in this story. It's a powerful insight for living. Of all the characters who ever doubted, John the Baptist probably is the least likely to doubt, if you know him. He was raised by good parents. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, the Scripture says, from his mother's womb. He had a clear calling on his life. He went out and preached powerfully his gospel of repentance. He had incredible results. He stood next to Jesus when the, Jesus was being baptized. As he baptized him, and the heavens opened up, and a voice, an audible voice said, This is my beloved Son. Doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? And yet here we are, finding him asking a question that, well, it's just puzzling. He says, are you the expected one? Now, what's going on here? Well, simply put, John is in a season of doubt. There are spiritual uncertainties that have suddenly entered his life, maybe probably for the first time. His comfortable spiritual formulas, they're not adding up at this moment in time. Has that ever happened to you? There ever been a time where you had God all figured out and you thought, I could do this, this, and this, and it'll guarantee that? And so you did this, this, and this, and you didn't get it? And you go, have I missed it? Well, that's what's happening here. He's in spiritual quicksand. He's wondering, have I missed it? It's a good question. And you know what? You need to face up to those questions that come in your life as well. We probably get a hint why John was feeling this way if we look back at his own preaching. He preached a lot out of Isaiah. And John came out of Judea, and the Judean rabbis had a picture, a theological picture of who Jesus was that John, I think, probably adopted as well. It was a very popular picture that the Messiah would come, create a spiritual revival in Israel. Israel would heal itself, throw off the Roman yoke militarily, and then become a light unto the nations. In fact, a jewel among all the nations. That's probably the theological formula he carried in his mind. Now, 18 months ago, when he baptized Jesus and heard the voice, it all seemed like it was going to roll out just like he expected. But now it's 18 months later. The formula is no longer working. The Romans are still in power. And John has been preaching, but he's gotten in trouble. Herod's thrown him into a Dead Sea prison, and he's rotting in there with no expectation of release. And Jesus has surrounded himself not with an army, but with a bunch of no-names. What's going on here? Have I missed it? You know, doubt can be a good thing. It really can be a good thing. I love what Oswald Chambers once said. He said, Doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that a man is thinking. John's thinking here. He's wondering about things. And I want you to know, you can't grow in your faith as a Christian and your theology without doubting at points. You can't do it. You can't get past some of your preconceived theological notions that you carried as a young Christian, which many times are inaccurate, forward without going through the doorway of doubt. You know, this week I watched Richard Roberts of Tulsa, Oklahoma on TV, Christian TV. And Richard was relaying a message via TV about his father, Oral Roberts, who recently had a very severe heart attack. I don't know if you know that. But here is a man who is kind of the originator of a whole theological system of health and faith 
and wealth. And yet he's sick and threatened with death. And when Richard Roberts came to report that on TV, I turned up the sound because I said, now this is going to be interesting. Because at this moment, he's in a quandary and I knew it. Is he going to say, well, you know, it didn't work? Or is he going to somehow deny everything and put his old theological glaze over and somehow repackage it? Well, that's what he did. See, sometimes reality doesn't match up with your theology. And when it doesn't, what are you going to do? Are you going to deny what reality is? Or are you going to do what John did, and that's bring a bunch of healthy doubt to the situation? John was a doubter. From time to time, we need to doubt. I've listened to people all through my ministry come in with broken hearts and with broken dreams say things like this. I thought Christians weren't supposed to suffer. I thought, I thought if you did this, somehow I thought he would ensure my children that they would be protected and turn out okay. They hadn't turned out very good. I was convinced if I, if I believed hard enough that, that my wife would be healed. But she didn't. She died. I prayed about whether I should marry this person. I prayed hard. I was convinced this was the one, but now it's 10 years later and we're divorced. Did I miss it? I've heard people say, you know, I stood up for righteousness. I was bold. I was courageous. And I got fired. What happened? Did I miss it? There's nothing wrong with doubt in those kind of circumstances. In fact, doubt may be the process that brings us to a right understanding of what God really is doing and giving us a much bigger picture, a much more mature picture of what theology is all about. You know what John does here in chapter 7? And this is what the story is all about, really. In chapter 7, what John is giving us is a healthy model of how to doubt. Follow me. Notice in verse 19, his healthy response to doubt. Rather than complain about being in a prison, rather than get angry, whether, rather than demand that he had given his whole ministry to Jesus Christ, and yet here he was in this stinking prison, and he wanted to get out, he deserved to get out, you owe it to me to get me out. Rather than do that, or rather than cover his feelings in some kind of dysfunctional denial, rather than any of that, you know what he does? He takes his doubt boldly to Jesus Christ. That's healthy. Are you doubting? You know the first place to go as a doubter is directly to Jesus Christ and state it plainly. You know, are you really trustworthy? I thought you said if I did this, this is how it'd turn out. Didn't do that. What's wrong? The best place to go is in prayer first to Jesus Himself and express those doubts. And you know what Jesus is going to do now that He is not on earth but in heaven? He's going to do what He does here. In time, what He's going to do is help you have a much clearer picture of what the Scripture really teaches, not what you thought it taught. And that's what he does with John, because notice in verse 22, when these men come to Jesus, and by the way, notice this, when they come to Jesus, Jesus doesn't get angry with doubt. Jesus doesn't get embarrassed. Oh, no, my forerunner, look what he's doing. Good grief. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He doesn't express anger at John. Good night. He's an unbeliever now. He's a wimp. 
You know, he's a traitor. He doesn't do any of that. He receives that doubt. But you know what he does with that doubt? He points these messengers and in time, John, back to the Scripture. Because if you'll notice in verse 22, all those capitalized words are quotes out of Isaiah. The very book that John used to preach. And what he's saying is this. Jesus is reminding John, John, when you're in doubt, go back and think about what the Scripture really says. That's why in Acts, when they listened to Paul, it says of the Thessalonians, they were more noble-minded than the Bereans because as they listened to Paul speak, they opened up the Scripture and examined everything Paul said through the lens of the Scripture. And it says there in Acts 17, 11, to see if what Paul was saying was so. What's happening here is that Jesus is asking John to forget about what the rabbi said the Messiah would do, to let go of what you want Messiah to do or when you expected Messiah to do it. What he's asking John here is he's saying, John, what does the Scripture, what does Isaiah say he will do? And then look at me and ask the question, am I doing it? Then you'll have your answer. That's how you answer doubt. You answer doubt by thinking about what the Bible really says, of going back to it. That's what he asked John to do. Now, by the way, when he answers John, see, John's still going to be in prison. In fact, John's going to be beheaded. At that moment when he gets that answer, John can do one of two things. He can now readdress his expectations of what he thought the Messiah was going to be and believe the biblical answer, or he can reject Jesus' biblical answer and take his doubt into disbelief. And those are two different things. He could do that. That's why Jesus ends this section in verse 23 by quoting out of uh, Hosea the prophet. He says, Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me, which means this. It means blessed is he when he hears the biblical answer conforms his old expectations and thoughts and feelings to what the Bible really says rather than fighting what the Bible really says and disbelieving what the Bible really says because if he does that, he won't experience blessedness, grace in that fall from faith. He's just going to experience more pain. See, there was a place where John was in prison when he heard that Jesus really was the Messiah that all of a sudden he had to say, well, I guess it's God's will that I'm here. <laughs> so now that I'm here, how can I approach God and ask Him for grace to help me through this experience? Rather than just experiencing more pain of disbelief saying, I'm here, and God, why did you let this happen to me? See that? That's how you deal with doubt, which brings us to insight number three. Doubt is an opportunity to form deeper biblical convictions and commitments. So don't be afraid of your doubts. It's healthy. And don't stop with your doubts until you have a clear biblical answer because that's healthy too. So here you have three stories conveying simple but very powerful and profound spiritual truth. Stories, as I said, can, do, uh, can convey truth like no other form of communication can, but there's one thing that stories can't do. And that's how I want to conclude. Stories cannot make you implement these rich insights into your life. These are insights for living, nothing more. What you do with these profound insights 
will make all the difference in this coming week or in your coming eternity or for your hurtful, alone heart. What you do with these truths is important, but you have the key to turn these insights for living into power for living. That's left to you. Let's pray. Lord, as we read these stories, we rejoice because they tell us, though you didn't have to, you want to get involved with us. You care about us. You don't just care about healing us, though you do care that, but you care about saving us. You care about fellowship with us. You care about feeling with us. You're patient in walking through our own doubts. All these truths have been expressed tonight are truths that you set forth to tell us that you love us. And I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here this evening that these insights for living would become realities in each of our lives. Lord, without these things, we are like the slave we read about in the beginning, paralyzed, sick, deteriorating. But with faith, with belief, with knowing that you're moving to us, we have a whole different reality if we would but believe and trust you. And that is life and fulfillment and healing. Lord, I pray that no one here would leave that would find themselves in the crowd leaving the city, but that they would take that radical faith step of joining the group that's going into an eternal city with Jesus Christ in the center. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time of worship. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.